Welcome. We are super pumped to have you join us for our very first Rivers Fog podcast ever. So having said that, Rivers Fog is a podcast dedicated to navigating and clearing the hazy fog of grief by sharing inspirational, raw, beautiful, and sometimes humorous stories. Rivers Fog is brought to you by What Matters Most Evansville, where the co-founders and host, Jim and Andrea. Our episode today is a long one, just over 45 minutes, but dang, is it a good one. Please keep in mind, we are first-time podcasters and welcome donations so we can eventually pay a freaking professional to make it sound much better. We are sitting on 14 absolutely stellar interviews with plans to drop new episodes every Wednesday. Be sure to check out and like our Facebook page at WMME and go ahead and join our private group. All right, on to the awesomeness. Our guest today is a nationally recognized speaker, Dr. B.J. Miller. He talks about the importance of acknowledging and living with the small griefs and losses, the daily deaths, and exercising those muscles to better prepare for bigger losses in life, including our own future final breath. He states, I can only have life because of death. What Matters Most Evansville has the true honor and pleasure of introducing Dr. B.J. Miller. Many consider him an expert in the field of end of life. His famous TED Talk titled What Really Matters at the End of Life has well over 11 million views. In addition to his famous book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. Recently, he started a new organization called Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E, focused on supporting a person's ability to cope well with difficulties or to face a demanding situation in a spirited and resilient way. He's one of the most down-to-earth gentlemen I have ever spoken to. We were fortunate to talk to him after he joined our local Death and Donuts back in July, and he was more than willing to join us on our next adventure here today. And of course, he prefers being called BJ. We don't have enough time to explain the numerous reasons of why we have asked him to join us. Today, he's going to share just a little insight to how he almost quit med school until he took an elective and along with the importance of engaging more in the daily losses and supporting our vision of what matters most to Evansville. BJ speaks all over the country and internationally on the themes of living well in the face of illness and death. Without further ado, Jim and I are introducing BJ. Happily so. <laughs> Happily so. Well, um, well, I mean, so thank you. Um, and it's funny you say expert in the end of life. It's funny. I mean, I, I understand that, and I'm, we're prof- you know in this professional field. It's just a funny thing to hear because like, how the heck do you become an expert in that? It's sort of like you know. <laughs> But no, but I take your point, and a lot of my work has been around end of life. And but ultimately, like you guys know, sure, death is a big deal. Death happens. Death is real. Death sets the context for our lives. Does many many things. But so much of the job of being with people is really until they die, and it's really sort of having a, a, a view on life that includes death. And so that you can be with yourself and with each other all the way through. That we don't have to partition ourselves and get out of the way or feel bad for dying, etc. So anyway, it the my job and in my life, 
death has helped me live my life better, uh, more thoughtfully. And, you know, so much of my job really is around communication and sitting with hard stuff and dealing with things that I can't change. So I, I, I think of my job as this interface between the, you know, this sort of interface between life and death, the interface between patients and medicine, the interface between uh, really stuff you can't affect and stuff you can't change. And so much of the feeling for me is helping people navigate control, both, both losing it and finding it. Um, I, don't, I think it's not very helpful to say, oh, let go of control, you don't have any. Nor is it very helpful to say, oh, you can control anything if you just think positive thoughts or I don't know what. So anyway, my job, I think, is really negotiating really between as people are negotiating really between as people are losing some sense of agency and control, but also finding where they do still have control, where they still have a say, where they still are themselves. And that's just fascinating stuff. I just love it. And, and knowing that you love hearing people find ways to still have control throughout their life. You know, I'm, I'm curious of, of your years and practice and, and maybe even outside of medicine, but just conversations in general with public, friends, family. If there's any kind of common themes that you hear people talking about or avoiding or just kind of patterns that you've noticed along your own life journey. Mm-hmm. Well, what comes to mind when you say that, Andrea, is what, you know, denial gets a big, gets a lot of play. I mean, you know, I think it's pretty, I think probably the three of us would agree, and many, many of us in the country would agree, that we don't do death very well. We don't deal with death very well. And we kind of keep it at bay, we defer, um, and we block it out. Yeah, and that's a big, big problem. It's a big, big problem. But wait, now I'm losing sight of what your question was, Andrea. Sorry. Oh, my mind just roamed. Hey, you know what? I think I think that's part of it. Our minds roam because sometimes mm-hmm. when we think about death and life, it's 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 hard to articulate. It's such a big thought that sometimes I even question my brain can't even take these uh-huh. neurosynapses and put it into words of. How simple yeah. I think living life can be when we talk about death, and not that we're just here talking about death and just acknowledging, hey, we're all going through some type of cycle, um, whatever that looks like, and where you meet people on your journey. Um, because I know you've had lots of conversations and. You even doing podcasts, they take energy from you. And I would love, I know Jim and I would love to know what helps you stay focused in conversations mm-hmm. at times or to be present. Well, right. Oh, let's, yeah, thank you. I think it's really key because the subject matter is hard, no matter how much we might love it. Um, it is taxing, it is draining, it does pull you in weird ways. And we're, you know, as empathetic critters, we feel the sufferings of others. We take it on. And so there's a big professional hazard around that in our field. So, yeah, let me answer that. But I realize I also remember what you were asking about before, and I started to say something about denial. You know, there's themes that bubble up, whether in myself or others, as I deal with end-of-life issues or suffering. And I started to say something about denial. And, that, okay, so maybe Americans aren't, we, maybe we're not so great at this stuff. 
and I believe, and I, that's my observation too. It's one of the ways I think the way we handle aging and the way we handle death and the way we handle nature and the way we handle all sorts of things beyond ourselves. Um, we tend to give them sort of short shrift. Um, there's a lot of pressure to kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and move on and sort of independence and these ideas of strength. And I, Especially here in the Midwest. I tell you what, if I've heard oh, that yeah. slogan once growing up in Evansville, Indiana, I've heard it a thousand times. Yeah. And Sorry, me too, in Chicago. Yeah. No, no, it's, I feel you. I grew up in Chicago mostly, but also St. Louis and spent some time in Milwaukee. And I, I totally absorbed that pick yourself up thing. What um, a disservice in some really important ways. I mean, I lost my sister 20 years ago, and I tried to grieve. I gave it a couple days kind of thing, and then tried to kind of yank myself back in the world, put a smile back on, move forward. That's one of the biggest regrets of my life. I, I really, I cut short my acute grief with her. Of course, I kind of circled back, but I really wanted to be seen as strong and capable. So, and I just sort of tried to beeline to the punchline, which is, of course, life goes on. And so I just went to, oh, life goes on, and you know, and I didn't spend a lot of time scraping the barrel with my sister's memory when it was really, really fresh. And I really regret that. That was a disservice. I would never give that counsel to anybody now. I mean, grief is such an opportunity. It's such a loving, lovely, horrifying, difficult place that is so, so normal. And if we don't roll with it, it'll come back and bite us in the tush one way or another. So, hey, I'm all for strength, but I also think strength, I mean, what's, what's, I think vulnerability is an incredible strength. You know, if you can withstand, if you can be vulnerable, if you can sit with that and still exist, that's pretty dang strong. Whereas people who see themselves as this monolithic, immovable creatures that are unchanged by life, that that may be cool in the movies, but that ain't very, doesn't really work because it's not very interesting. And it's not very strong. Like if I'm invulnerable, if I can feel no pain, then what's strong about me living with pain? There's, you know, Yes. The fact that I can be hurt is what allows me to be strong by moving through the pain. Well, I think that's a that's a whole part of that control thing because, like, if you feel strong, I'm in control. The problem is at some at some place that's going to come crashing down. Yeah. Yep. Right. And because right, of course, we can't control. Look around us. We're one little grain of sand on a gazillion. We kind of puff ourselves up so we feel some amount of importance or stability in our lives. We may try to become a sandcastle instead of a grain of sand, but we're still a drop in the bucket. And I, I used to think in the ways I grew up, I used to find that a sort of a scary thought, like a demeaning, a demoralizing thought to realize how teeny I am, to realize how little control I had. And as I've grown up, I've gotten much more in, 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 enamored with that fact. And I love, I love the idea that the ocean, I'm a drop in the ocean. And therefore, the pressure's off me to make the ocean be, you know, whatever. And I don't have to, like, rule the ocean. So I get a, there's relief. And it's also true that the ocean would not be the same ocean without my little drop in it. You know, I mean, that's the sort of proportionality I've come to love. It's, I find that very liberating rather than demeaning. And I find a lot of agility and dexterity in that, personally. But it took me a while. I love, I love the analogy. You know, we're here on a riverbend, and... 
you know, we've been brainstorming kind of, we're going to come up with a logo for what matters most. And it's, we go back to kind of that ripple in the water, starting these small conversations, acknowledging that, hey, you know what? There is great strength and courage and being vulnerable and sitting with someone in this discussion or acknowledging this might be my last tube of toothpaste I buy. This, you know, I, that makes me think of Julia Tarante. She wrote a book called The, the Open Broken Heart. And mm-hmm. just when we think about that, that strength and that courage and being a, a ripple, a drop in the water is that, yeah. Nailed yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful analogy. There's so much about water that works with this stuff. I mean, I think, you know, uh, this idea of agility and nimbleness being really the what, what depth calls someone's in us. Uh, you know, that losses, they come up every day. We're um, lost around us all the time. The idea that the world is a static thing that we can master and get used to and then be, you know, and master and be done with it. No way. It's way more dynamic than that. So I have found, whereas I used to want big muscles and these like this immovable thing. Now I just love sort of bobbing in the ocean. I love letting water take me where it goes. And I feel this sort of curiosity now to see you stick with your river in Evansville. What's around the bend? And, and just be curious rather than terrified. And almost hoping it's a foreign territory, almost hoping it's something I've never seen, almost hoping it takes me down to my stud, and makes me question who I am. I've just, I've become, I just love that process. I find so much rebirth in it. I find right sizing. I find humility in it. I find intrigue. Blah 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 blah. But to be clear, I just want to say, in case the listeners sound, if we sound too enraptured, you know, <laughs> that it's not necessarily fun. You know, being in a scary river flowing down, it can be scary, too. You know, maybe there's a waterfall around the bend. Maybe there's who knows what. Um, so my point here is, I just want to, before I go on and on, I want to get across, like, while the three of us and others will have found some peace around our true nature, that of being mortal, that doesn't mean that when it comes time for me to die, I'm not going to be terrified. That doesn't mean that I have gone done with fear. No, I still feel fear all the time. It's just more that I hope I've gotten up and exercised my, that muscle so that I can keep fear in its place and have not be paralyzed by it. But who knows? I might come upon fear that completely floors me and takes me down. That's okay. I want to reserve the right to freak out when it's my time to die. So I just want to be clear that we're not, I'm not, we're not advocating that everything's so beautiful. Why are you guys have, what's wrong with dying? Why are you guys not afraid of dying? No, I get it. It's scary yeah. stuff. So I just, I guess I'm advocating for a fuller view of reality that includes death. So we're not at war with ourselves. So we're not at war with nature. So we don't heap pain on the pile when we find ourselves dealing with things that we wouldn't have imagined. That's, that's, I just want to make that clear. A hard feeling to welcome. And I think I'm, I'm, oh, sorry, Jim. Something like kind of within that conversation, I think as humans, especially as Americans, is we just lack self-awareness. Because if I'm aware of my fear, I'm going to be afraid. But like if I'm aware of that, then I can kind of navigate it more. I can I can feel okay. it where it's like we, but as Americans, like we just want to you know go forward and move on. Mm-hmm. And, and you had talked earlier, just a few seconds ago, said something about the daily kind of the daily thing, and that's the kind of conversation that Andrea and I have been having about just acknowledging our daily grief 
you know, I, I think of an example of like one day my wife was out of town and my two sons had to be someplace at the same time. And at the last minute, I'm trying to figure it out. And obviously this, and I spent like hours going, okay, how am I going to make this work? Like it was so important to me to my sons needed to do their thing. And then I realized it wasn't going to happen. And I was disappointed. And like, it was grief. And no, it's yeah. not death, but I, and I just sat there and for then I just stopped for a minute. And I said, okay, Jim, this hurts because you want your kids to be able to do their thing. And, you know, just acknowledge in that moment, I am grieving right now. Now, you know, it, we move, I move on and it doesn't work out and everything's fine. But I think that's the thing, a conversation that Andrea and I have tried to have been having that we want people to see, like, if you can practice grief and the... Uh, you failed the test that you worked really hard for, you know, the promotion, all, all the little things. I just, you know, my wife and I had a fight, and I didn't like that, and now I'm grieving. Yeah. Um, that, that, that can have the idea of the awareness of what is going on today, and in today, the grief in today. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, and I've, I've coined your, your, t your, your phrase quite a bit, BJ, and I've mm. shared, you know, making friends with death, and Part of what Jim is saying, you know, it's almost like practicing. Is it a death, is life a death rehearsal? Or is it, you know, what, and, and acknowledging how grief comes in so many different forms, it, do you find that it helps you prepare more for your own immortality or helping others on that journey? I certainly think so. I am with you guys. I mean, Jim, your point's super well taken. I think it's really instructive to realize because I think otherwise people say, well, I haven't died, so I don't know, you know, and so um, I have no, I can't possibly, how do I prepare for death? I've never died, it sounds like the, the key, but, but we have little deaths along the way. We have daily little deaths, you know, loss of identity, loss of a job, loss of a role, loss of an, even an illusion, like losing something that may not be even healthy, losing an, an addiction, like having to quit drinking, you know, can be, there's plenty to grieve there, you know, there's, it's as human beings, we accumulate losses at an incredible clip. Um, and if we're self-aware, we've got to be aware. And I think this is the challenge to self-awareness is then you're going to have to be aware of all the pain that's in you and around you. Of course, if you don't deal with it, it just grows and grows teeth and, and you start acting like a, a, you know, get scarred down and you start perpetuating pain. But I just, but I, you guys are bringing up something really, really important that you can practice for your death to some degree by just paying attention to the daily losses along the way. And you may, so, so death almost in quotes. And what do we know about death anyway? I don't know what happens after I die. Yeah. I have no, I can't say. Uh, I, all I can say is it's a change. That's all I know. It's a big, huge change, but it's a change. And it's a loss. And it's a transition. And those are things I know very, very well. So I might convince myself I know nothing about death, but I do know something about loss. I do know something about change, et cetera. So that, that putting it in sort of daily terms helps us become more intimate, have a relationship with our nature, have a relationship with death, so that it's not so scary, this foreign invading force that's going to come get you someday. It's much more benign than that and much more common and normal and boring even. Yeah, it's, it's a like, part of life. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned in there, like, you know, we don't know what it is. Do you think that's a huge barrier is people just don't, they don't want to, again, the, the loss of control. I don't know what actually happens on the other side. 
Um, do you think that's one of the barriers in our culture that keeps us from talking, from having this conversation? I think so. I mean, I think and I think there are a lot of there's a lot to say about that. I think most of us were raised in, in this country around the Christian tradition, and some of us in a more sort of Calvinistic idea of sort of brimstone. It could be we're terrified of death because of Judgment Day and the, the, the possibility of hell and this sort of coming to a moment where we got to account for everything we ever did or said or thought. You know, that kind of setup. Um, while it adds meaning and a story and a narrative and sort of a, a, a sense through time and space of what happens with death, firstly, I don't know that that's I, – I, I was great, I raised Episcopalian. I, there's a lot I love about the Christian tradition, but I have let go of this idea of, of a heaven and hell. If they exist, okay, but there's not much I can do about it now. I have to believe, though, that there's enough proof of heaven on this earth to take life seriously and not burn through this time on the planet while we have it. But there's, now I'm getting a little farther afield, Jim, but to get back to your question, I do think some of our narratives around what happens after death are scary. Um, also, the, in this country, the sort of these narrow ideas of strength mean that you're supposed to know, you're supposed to have conviction. And so when you don't, when you're confused, mystery starts feeling like ignorance. Um, not knowing smells like ignorance rather than this very natural and normal, even curious state. Right. So we don't do ourselves any favors with our cultural overlays and our belief systems around death. We tend to perpetuate this thing that is this foreign invading thing that's going to come get us someday. It's, it's this scary, bad thing, all negative, all dark. And then you have to worry about, geez, am I going to go to hell after that? I mean, there's a lot of reason to ignore the subject. It's just I mean, People used to wander the wilderness and that's how they lived. They constantly were voyaging new territories and, you know, kind of being in tune with the earth and what's blooming. Where's the water flowing? We're back to water again. Where's the water flowing? But that's how they survived literally and figuratively. I mean, that's how they survived. And we've, you know, we've taken that out. We've, we've, we've removed nature, we're, you know, and we're trying to now incorporate it as I feel like our, Humanity's kind of at this grasp of we can't keep dying this way. Our healthcare can't keep being this way. And I mean, you have you have experienced things on your life journey getting you to this point that the average person has not experienced. And you know, when you spoke earlier about you know loss, whether it being a person, a place, a thing, you have you have lost parts of your own body during a traumatic event and you have still catapulted to trying to keep yearning and exploring things. Doesn't mean you ain't scared. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. you're angry and frustrated, but what, what has helped feed you from that experience and trying to remain open? Yeah. Well, so much that we're talking about in a way was I got, uh, you know, at age 19, these electrical burns when I was horsing around on a train. And that resulted in amputations that I, you know, my legs and one arm. And in some ways, I'm so grateful for that experience. And I almost wish, you know, as I watch younger folks growing up, you, you find, I find myself with a mildly sadistic wish that everyone goes through something really horrible and hard at a relatively young moment in their life to learn some really important lessons around control, around interdependence, how we need each other how fragile life is, but also how durable life is, and how we have to live with these contradictions. 
and how we are actually natural critters. This, I, I also inherited this sort of man versus nature thing, as though humans aren't part of nature. You know, so I, you know, something needed to happen to me to sort of cut through all that junk that was, and and, and it did. At, at age nineteen, I was very happy for that. Uh, it was a miserable experience, but boy, did I learn a lot. And in a way, what keeps me going was sort of like this very basic math as I sat in a burn unit, you know, loads of pain, no fun, questioning who I was, all sorts of things going on. But I also saw as my body, you know, I was, as you said, parts of my body had died. I was losing all sorts of things. But I also felt curiously a consistency to there was something that wasn't changing in me there was a life force that was working through me and in me that I couldn't it was just a fact it was just there I didn't have to do anything and and I still felt like me on some level even as I was losing everything and it helped that I had friends and family and, and nurses who were you know were loving me essentially while I was trying to figure myself out but the bottom line is I kind of got to this very I got to this place where I just saw how everything is constantly changing. How everything is constantly in some form is formation and deformation. Formation, deformation. And this was just my body was just another thing in formation and deformation. Arising, going away. Uh, you know, it's just growth and decay. Just, growth and decay. Yeah. Happening all at the same time all over the place. And so I just had to sort of develop this just because it was proven to me that my life, my body was much this was this fluid thing. And so I could be very and I've done my time with depression. And ultimately, the math comes down to like sometimes I find myself exasperated with life, can't handle it, don't want to handle it, almost welcoming death. And then I get this very sort of simple crossroads moment where I go, well, I mean, whatever death is, maybe it's better, maybe it's worse, I don't know, but uh, should I keep going? Like, do, do I go left, choose life, take another step, see what happens, or go right and be done with it? Well, to go right and be done with it, there was zero hope of anything, of me learning anything. There was zero hope. And if I got left, I might learn something, I might see something new, I might be surprised, I might gain something, I don't know. I just kept, I keep choosing in a very boring simplistic way it's not like i had to make this argument that life's amazing and death is horrible and so i'll keep forcing myself levering myself to choose life again and again it's more like that's part of life go left go right either way whatever it's just sort of i did i i i, I diffused the stakes from feeling so high so it made it easier for me to choose life again and again and again well i guess i'll keep going you know i can even i have a thought i had a feeling Okay, that's enough. I'll keep going. And I just kept going, kept going. Here I am. And it sort of came down to that very, I don't know if I'm getting it across, but it's a very unsophisticated, very basic way to continue to move yourself through this world. And it served me very well. So, BJ, was there a time after your accident, like was there a time when you said, okay, I know that I want to devote my life to this, to what you're doing now, to communicating about death and being a doctor who gets involved in death so much was there was that just a gradual thing or was there at some point you said okay this is what I want to do and I know this is what I want to do it was a it was a little bit of there's some moments along the way that were kind of sudden but it was a little bit more gradual and it also gets to your question that I didn't answer about sort of how do I care for myself in this work and how do I deal with my own life in this context 
um, you know, when I got out of the hospital, I went back to college, and I was um, at that time I would, went back as a junior in college. Had to declare my major. At that point, I had not. I was not. One of the things that the accident did for me was really pulled me into the moment. You know, I couldn't plan a week ahead. You know, I, I couldn't plan a career or any of the other things that my peers were doing. I couldn't plan an awake or a day ahead. I was so like just by necessity, one foot in front of the other. It slowed me down and allowed me to sort of see and feel the world a little differently. And so when I went back to college, I decided to study art and art history as my major um, because I had this sense that I had, had a belief in a sort of liberal arts approach to school. And so I was in that mode. And I felt like the things I was wondering about was like, did my, fam- did my life have as much value anymore? Was I, what did I have to offer this world? What kind of, could I do now? Was I less of a person that I had fewer body parts? Did my was I less valuable? I mean, our our, our language and our structures around disability in this country—it's another way we sort of—it's another remarkably marginalized group and, um, that you know. Your all the language around it is that you're less than. You may be still of value in the world, but you're less valuable with disability. You're 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 abnormal. You're pulled apart. You're separate. It's really kind of cruel because those, there's nothing natural about those structures. We 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 humans do that to each other. Um, but anyway, so I was having these questions of identity, and I figured I figured like, well, what is what is this thing that humans do? We make art. Like, why the heck do we make art? Like, how do like we take this raw material of a life and we somehow shape it into something else and and inject meaning into it? kind of I don't know any other species that does it and here I was like a pile of raw material sort of dismembered literally and figuratively and trying to kind of put myself back together and it felt like there was a lot for me to learn from the art world and it was true it was a funny hunch and I was proved to be true so I went back and I learned how to kind of piece myself together and then it became an exploration of sort of how we make a life how we make a persona and then I guess sort of started feeling a sort of creative spark to my life rather than a drudgery of being disabled and just trying to make it through the day even though you're less than and no one blah 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 no now it felt creative now i just felt like and it was like sitting in a and i'm gonna go on and on i'm sorry here guys but there was this class i was sitting in it was this moment where um you know old i mean i'm not an artist but i picked up i picked up a couple things along the way so i started to say i was sitting in a class this hunch to study art, to, to view life in this creative way, that to view daily life in a creative way, that I was engaged in, a, in that my own therapy and re-entering the world was a creative process. And I love that because, of course, it's fun to feel creative. And disability, like death, all the, you know, it's sort of, it just, it, it sort of feels like it's, you're identified by all that you can't do. And so it felt really important for me to kind of own the adaptive qualities of human beings. Like we can adapt, we can change. It's a, it's amazing. So anyway, I'm sitting in this class, kind of playing out this hunch. And I remember there was these old statues. They were showing us figures from ancient Greece, you know, and a lot of these old statues, thousands of years old, and we're sitting there admiring the statues. And I, <laughs> at some point, noticed that a lot of them were missing limbs. And no one was talking about the missing limbs. It was just like over time, if you had a 2,000-year-old statue, it's going to lose a limb here and there somewhere along the way. 
And so we're sitting there admiring the statues, talking about these amazing works of art and all this stuff. And I'm like, holy shit, I, I, hey. And no one was talking about what, what wasn't there. And so it's just, it was just in a moment, viscerally, I got this idea that how contextual we are and how it just depends what you're comparing yourself to. So I began to take on my, be my own frame of reference. Because if I compare myself to you, Jim, well, shit, I mean, God, I'm going to come up short. You've got all these limbs, you've got muscles that I don't have, you know, blah, blah, blah. But if I'm, hey, I find my own frame of reference, then I don't have to feel less than you, Jim. You know, I don't have to find someone that I feel more than to puff myself up. It's a harder road in some way because you have to take that sort of responsibility, internalize it, but it, it totally liberated me. And I, I eventually got to a point where I didn't define myself by what, by what I had lost. And that was, as you can imagine, super opening. And I, and I, and studying art, I gained this creative lens, and I gained this idea that we make meaning. We humans, we're the ones who inject meaning. You can inject meaning into, a, I don't know what, a doorknob if you want to. That's your prerogative. And so I started to feel this sort of um, agency. You could call it a sense of control, but it's not like I'm controlling things. I'm controlling how I see something. I learned how to look, learned how to see. And that's where I think the great human potential lies in our ability to creatively look at something and choose how we see it. We may not be able to change what we're looking at, but we can change how we see it. That was a big, big deal for me to learn. And so all my life started opening up in ways, and then I could take pride in this body. I didn't have to be embarrassed by it. Um, and then off I went. So that took me through college, and then I had to realize, holy cow, i got to get to make a living somehow. And that's when I started thinking about medicine as a way, gosh, like if my doctor come in the room looking like me, what a different experience I would have had as a patient. Because huh. there's this sense like doctors over here, patients down here. Doctors are these fountains of knowledge and they know things that you don't and they're perfect beings and we patients are broken and we know. And so it felt really interesting to break that divide up and actually be a patient and a doctor at the same time. And so that was a hunch I pursued, in part because I didn't know what else I wanted to do to make a living. It wasn't that I was enamored with medicine as much as I didn't know what else to do. It was like, oh, okay, I'll try this. And like we were saying earlier, this new sort of survival technique, I was like, huh, yeah, I guess medical school is apparently pretty hard. Well, if it's too hard, I'll just stop. You know, no big deal. Yeah. You know, I didn't. And failure had lost its sting to me. Um, and so I just off I went. And one foot in front of her, and then it got through med school, and then, then I was going to dump medicine, and then uh, I got I did an elective in palliative care uh, during my internship, and then and that really then that, that's when I really committed myself to this work. But I'll say one more thing about it, Jim. Um, uh, was the it wasn't so much the I was interested in death per se, but really the, what most informed my has the most informed my work is what we're talking about is more around the disability, around the losses that I live with and my, my living relationship to death, these many deaths that humans have every day. That's where, that's where so much of the juice has been for me versus the big death at the end of life. I'm interested in that too, but I'm much more engaged around the daily losses like we've been talking. So anyway, long window answer your question, but that's, that's how I got here. We have long-winded questions, so it, it works out just fine. Um, my eyes got wet when, because I could just picture you looking at that piece of artwork when you had this 
kind of new revelation of, oh, why am I comparing myself to other people? I mean, my, I mean, my heart beat different, and that that's part of you know what matters most is what are things that not yes we all you know we want to do good for for the good of people, but we can't do that unless we find something that makes our heart beat differently, that moves us where we can transform and and grow and you know you know i know you listeners can't can't see bj right now as we're blessed to have him with us but he's got this huge beautiful tree behind him and and people that know me know that i love trees um you know i always joke coincidentally i I married an arborist so that that worked out because he can keep my trees healthy as needed but we everything is just these growth and you've shared so much just how you have grown and developed in these life transitions and grief along the way is what made you a better person, but not hiding from it. You were in denial at first and and even with your sister. Um, But now you recognize that and it's, you've, grief has helped serve you to be a better person and that's, That's part of, I think, what what I know Jim speaks a lot about the grief conversation. And so Mm -hmm. we can't thank you enough for sharing your time. I I don't want to end this Zoom call. Well, we don't have to yet. Uh, But I also just want to pick up what you're saying. And really, and I meant earlier when Jim, you had said something about this, both you guys, I I am so with you. I feel I've... just the wild times we're in. Um, if I had, if someone, if I had to say, you know, what human capacity do we need to develop right now to to move through where where we are to 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 live today? Hands down, my answer would be grieving. Like that is the most because, like, as you guys, the point you guys have made, you know, this is a daily phenomenon, loss, whether it's your own directly or someone you care about or even no one you care about. We're empathetic critters. We feel each other. So if there's pain halfway across the world, we can still grieve that ourselves. It's still touching us somewhere. And so I think this idea of getting a nuanced, a bigger relationship to grief, a more normal one, a more fluid one, I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us are in some amount of grief pretty much every day. Um, whether it's for lost car keys or that experience you mentioned with your family, Jim, it's all over the place. And it is such, so it's normal, yes, but it's also so potent. It's how we digest change, how we make, honor what was and, and reacquaint ourselves with what still is. And it's just a beautiful sort of alchemy, a powerful force that we have. And I just want to shout to the rap rooftops like now I hope our country has enough of an excuse now for us to leapfrog in maturity and have a new relationship to grief. It's not something you bootstrap yourself with. It's not something that should be done within a couple weeks. Way bigger than that, way more mysterious than that, and way more interesting than that. And it's a useful, useful force. It's how we metabolize change. I just want to say... I'm with you guys. Please stick with that message. Scream it out loud. That's that's the muscle we all need right now. Yeah. And I think what made me think of it as an athlete, I practice something every day. I practice these little steps every day mm-hmm. so that when I went to put them all together in a game, it was natural. And I'm like, what? So we do this and we in a job and whatever we do, right? We practice the same thing over and over. And if you mm-hmm. practice it wrong, it's 
pictures and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what I started thinking about it. It's the same thing. Like, what if every day we were practicing this? We just yeah. practice. It's, it, it's simply it's just like preparing for a competition for as an athlete. And you, yeah. when you do it right over and over, and I, I say right, and obviously that's not the best term, but you're doing it. You're processing it. <laughs> you work the yeah. muscles well. Yeah. So I'd say you know, it's like a practice. Song, it's, I'm I'm a huge. You know, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan and, you know, CFFTs and, you know, we got to just, and, and, you know, we, we all die once. Does it, and let, I mean, there are people, and I love hearing your death experiences, but we, we all kind of go through this mind, body, spirit all once and our body may change, our mind may change and this practice that, that you gentlemen are speaking of, of how do we practice and prepare and make friends with death? because that actually helps us live and connect and join our community and yeah. getting back to what matters most. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you start seeing the truth, these bigger truths. It's not, we keep humans, we keep wanting to reduce our world to make it manageable. Truth is life is way more fascinating and bigger than we give it credit for. Way more amazing than we give it credit for, you know? And this idea, I think circling back, speaking of the church, um, you know, one of the things that I had to unlearn over time, and I don't blame the church for this, it was my own sort of understanding. I sort of absorbed this idea that death and life were opposed. Right. Whereas I think what grief helps you realize is, no, death and life are totally entwined. Right. And grief allows you that, like, and I like calling it a muscle because you have to you practice it, you build it, you know, you, um, and what you're building is this capacity to sit with things that you can't control. You're building this bigger view on reality that's way bigger than yourself. So in a way, you're expanding your capacity just like you would um, exercising or just as you would training for a sport. Um, and I think that's a really good analogy. But I think the bottom line I just want to make sure to get across here is I think what I've learned is that life and death are part of, this, are, are, are part of the same package. They're not opposed. And that, that helps me immeasurably that helps me feel like I can know this thing called death and be less afraid of it and to realize that I only get life because of death so it's a package package deal can't have one without the other it's like trying to have a life full of only positive experiences fine good luck you'll have half a life um, I'm, anyway I'm writing that down it's that that's one of my quote in my quote but I can only have life because of death yeah and, There's no two ways about it. And it's been presented, that line has been presented to me in, with other meanings in my life. Mm -hmm. But this is that meaning that makes my heartbeat different, um, which is why it's going in my quote book, Sir <laughs> BJ. I was going to ask Jim what your sport was. Well, I so I, I get into high school with football and baseball, and then I played four years of college football. Mm. Got it. That's what you call those muscles. And honestly, like, well, one of the things that it goes back to what you were talking about before, and, you know, if we all knew how to do grief, well, the biggest thing I learned from sports when I teach my kids is perseverance, which is essential. That's what grief is, right? Mm -hmm. Grieving. So the, the biggest thing that I, that I took away from my my life as an athlete is was perseverance. And you can do it and don't quit. And sometimes it's hard. And that's, yeah. like, I mean, that's totally grief. When I look back at my athletic experience, yeah. that's the grieving experience, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to yes. push through it. Not, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to go through this, and there's no easy way to get to the, 
to the next step. Yeah. Amen. And can you imagine, Jim, you know, the idea that one of the things that organized athletics taught me was how to lose, you know? Right. Like, can you imagine what a, what a sad career would be to have a completely undefeated career of any, in any sport? What, what, a, what a shame that would be, in a way, because one of the great lessons is how to lose. And sportsmen, like, you know, and, and when, when sports are done well, isn't it so beautiful even after you lose? You put the game down, you congratulate the other side, you shake hands. It's such a gorgeous thing when it's done well. But well, I, 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 sorry. Uh, so when I was in my sophomore and more year in high school on our JV football team, we were undefeated. We went 9-0, we didn't lose a game. So we were looking forward to our varsity years that were going to be great. Well, our senior year, we were 5-4, and four, and we barely got that fifth win. And our coach at our banquet at the end of the year, he said, he said, look, life isn't 9-0, and life is 5-4. Yeah. You, you've learned how to, to live your life. Yeah. Amen. Yep, great analogy. I'm going to use it. <laughs> I know I love these conversations and but going back to that muscle of you know any words of encouragement for us even here in southern Indiana of how to maybe explore ways to use our community muscles of mm-hmm. being that deaf-friendly place as Jim has introduced mm-hmm. me to and said I want Evansville to be deaf-friendly place and I said we're going to be best friends yeah well, it's such a beautiful mission. I've often I've had this thought when I've been around speaking and stuff, like, you know, wouldn't it be good? I, I, I'm waiting for the first town to market itself as a great place to die. Like, I, I don't know. Well, maybe Evansville will be the right place. Because, as we know, that's, that's basically saying it's a great place to live. Um, you know, and it's a great place to be entirely yourself. You know, it's a great place to have all of life, including its losses. You know, that's that's a beautiful, beautiful mission. It was one of the reasons I love I love um, freestanding hospice houses. I love architecture. I love design. I worked at a place called Zen Hospice Project for years, and part of the vision that I felt strongly about was that any community would have in its fabric, in its material life, in its structures, a place whether it's a public art or a hospice house, something that just told its citizens, told the public that we in this town care about death. We, we care about you even when you're sick, even when you're a burden, you know? <laughs> so we're, yeah. I'm high-fiving Andrew right now because this is a conversation we've been having for two years. Ultimately, okay. ultimately what we're doing is we haven't figured out what it's called or exactly what it looks like, but ultimately a, a yeah, but it's just going to be a space where it's a gathering of a place of grief, but it might be you just, you're at work and you don't want to go to a restaurant, but you don't want to sit in your building, so I need an hour to go sit someplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just this place where, uh, just a safe place where conversations to start, and that's like exactly, and of, and of course we had talked about this, but we also yeah. want to have it Evansville, it's Evansville, it's not San Francisco. Um, yeah, so, so be the, of the place. Our, like what you just said is our ultimate down the road. We hope that someday it is. Fine. You're safe. And I know, like I believe that it can happen because my dad died from dementia, so I got really involved in dementia. Well, we now have dementia-friendly cities, and this is a worldwide program that has dementia-friendly cities. So why can't we have death-friendly cities? Of course. And again, if anyone shoots back, and that's so morbid, and you say, well, you know, no, it's part of the, no, it's because I love life. I'm interested in death because I love life. That, that's the connection. 
And a lot of people, I think, you love death because, well, you must hate life. No, 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 no. That's that's buying into this, this false divide. So anyway, right. I am so with you guys. It'll be fun to watch what happens in Evansville. Got it. Thank you so much, BJ. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, will, guys. We will keep you posted and um, in weeks and months and years to come of hopefully some some progress on on this vision. When we host our first death conference. Give me a, give me a buzz. Like we're going to have a conference, so we will invite you to, to at least have our, our you know, speaker or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, any of the above, or just come participate. I'm just glad to know you guys are at this and doing it because uh, there's just so much beautiful work to be done, and life could be better than it is if we only kind of took this fuller view of it. So I really appreciate you guys doing this. So it's a, it's a team sport. I'm glad to be in the same team with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank Thanks, you. CJ. We'll be in touch. All right, you beauties. Okay, you take care. Bye, guys. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it straight from the mouth of Dr. B.J. Miller. What matters most, Evansville is a catalyst for creating a community-wide mindfulness of grief, a complex emotion which encompasses any form of loss, not just death. We seek to establish a consistent, sustainable environment in which individuals are supported in forming ideas, sharing stories, and building connections related to grief. With your support and engagement, we can transform our community to be more receptive to difficult conversations, making Evansville a place you can live well and die well because you can grieve well.